Welcome to Caregiving Club On Air. This podcast is dedicated to the millions of family caregivers who want wellness tips and self-care solutions, who seek expert advice, and who want news about healthy aging and how to create well-home design in our forever homes. I'm Sherry Snelling, a corporate gerontologist, author, and educator, a TV interviewer, host, and news commentator. I'm joining you from Southern California, where our interviews and news take us all across the country to explore the many ways to help you on your caregiving journey and to lift you up here at Caregiving Club On Air. Welcome to Caregiving Club On Air and our October episode on Active Aging Week, uh, Emotional Health Month, Lifelong Learning, Universal Home Design, Work Family Month, and also Breast Cancer Awareness Month, as well as Vision and Color for Health. I'm your host, Sherry Snelling, and we've got a lot to share with you in this episode. As I mentioned, we're going to start off with a couple of really great interviews. So we've got Lawrence Kosick, who is the co-founder of Get Set Up, which is an online learning platform for older adults to not only learn new things, but also maybe to learn some new skills for Encore careers and also for social engagement. So Lawrence is going to tell us about Get Set Up and how it really does boost the emotional health of its members. And then we've also got Rosemary Rossetti, who is a national expert on universal design. And in fact, she created the Universal Design Living Lab, which also happens to be her home. So she's going to tell us a lot about Universal Design, and we're going to really focus on that Aging in Place Week, as well as National Financial Planning Month. We know that when we want to make accommodations to our homes, it's going to take some finances, but Rosemary's going to take us through all of these great ideas and things that we can think about to make our homes both accessible, adaptable, and ageless as we help both ourselves, but also our parents and our grandparents stay living in their homes as long as possible. And then, as I mentioned, we've got great caregiver wellness news. We're going to talk a little bit about emotional health and what's happening in the workplace with employers. We're going to talk a little bit about mental health and emotional health and the difference between those two. We're also going to talk a little bit about well-home design and, again, give you some insights on how many homes really do need to be adapted and modified because we're going to have a much older population wanting to stay at home as long as possible. And then a celebration of Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And finally, our Me Time Monday Wellness Hack which is going to be in honor of National World Vision Day and also National Train Your Brain Day, which both happen to land on October 13th this year. So we're going to talk about vision and color and how that helps brain health. But with that, let's get started with our caregiver wellness news. So for our caregiver wellness news, as I mentioned, October is National Emotional Health Month, and I don't think there's any bigger topic that's being discussed out there in terms of mental health and emotional health. We know that this is huge, particularly coming out of the pandemic for so many across all age groups. And one of the questions that I get asked a lot is, what is the real difference between mental health and emotional health? You know, because a lot of people use them interchangeably. Let me give you just a few statistics first on some of these different mental and emotional health, how it impacts Americans. So we know that one in four Americans have a mental illness. Now, mental illness is 
you know, we think of things like schizophrenia or the schizoid spectrum. We think of bipolar disorder. We even think of things like clinical depression. There's a whole host of other mental illnesses that that definitely affect Americans, but one in four are suffering from some type of mental illness. Now, we also know that one in five Americans have anxiety disorder, which either requires medication or requires some type of therapeutic intervention. You know, there's a lot of things that can be done to address it. So post-traumatic growth is one way. Learned optimism is another way. These are some of the topics, by the way, that I'm researching right now for my upcoming book, Me Time Monday. And then about 8.5% of Americans before the pandemic were suffering from depression or at least a depressive episode, let's say, over the last 12 months. However, during and after the pandemic, that amount tripled. It's staggering because the people who now report and say that they're still suffering from depressive episodes, a lot of it based on the pandemic, is a staggering 27.8%. So that's huge. And these are obviously things that, you know, there are some things that we can learn to address some of these mental and emotional health issues. So let me give you a little bit of a definition of what's the difference between the two. So mental health is really the ability to process information and, you know, interpret situations that happen to us. So in some ways, you almost think of this as being the intake. So whatever's happening in our external world with us, that's kind of, you know, our ability to manage that, cope with that is really part of what we call mental health. Now, emotional health is very tied to mental health. They're very intertwined, really. But emotional health is how we emotionally react to these situations and to information that we're intaking. So it's really more of our output. It's how we use our emotions either to cope or how it affects us, these things that are happening. So we do know that mental health is a leading cause of disability. And in fact, there have been studies that have shown that people who suffer from mental health issues over the course of time can actually lose about 32 years of life. So they live not as long as other people Life expectancy can be maybe in the 50s or 60s, you know, or or even younger as compared to people who are living well into their 70s, 80s, and 90s. We know also that depression, so both clinical depression and situational depression is tied to inactivity. So very often, you know, we just want to cocoon, we kind of want to curl up in a ball in the corner, or we want to sleep a lot, but that inactivity is actually exacerbating our mental health. So The ability to exercise or move, just get outside and walk in fresh air, all of those things can be very helpful for people who are suffering from depression. And it's something that can happen to any of us. The depressive episodes happen through divorce or loss of a job or certainly something like the pandemic. And of course, caregiving for a loved one who is suffering from a chronic illness or a devastating disease, and then also the loss of that loved one. And really it has to do a lot with our emotions then. Our emotional health is tied to our ability to kind of control our environments, but also cope with our environments. And so, you know, we talk a lot about finding meaning and purpose in life, finding silver linings, looking for that hopefulness, Some of these techniques, as I mentioned, are things that are brought out in therapy like post-traumatic growth and other therapeutic interventions that can help a lot of people find that mental health balance and that equilibrium that we need. There's a great book, by the way, I'm just going to do a shout out. We'll have a link on it on our episode guide page, but 
It's called Finding Meaning. It's actually the sixth stage of grief. It's written by David Kessler, who worked with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who wrote about the five stages of grief. Well, David takes us to the next stage after we go through those five stages of grief, and it's called Finding Meaning. This is a really great book, you know, as I mentioned, really helping people, I think, to find those touchstones that give us that hopefulness and help us look forward into the future rather than just wanting to stop the clock and not have to deal with the things that are so traumatic today. I also just want to do a shout out because just a couple of days ago, I was at the USC Leonard Davis School of Gerontology, which is my alma mater, and they had a wonderful event. It was on women and resiliency, particularly as we age. I was a moderator for a great panel with uh, Professor Donna Benson and Professor Jennifer Aylshire, who are doing tremendous work in the areas of family caregiving and also community and environmental health and some of those studies and, and research that's being done in that area. But what was really interesting is, you know, this is just a few days after we lost Queen Elizabeth II, who lived until 96. And, and the news reports just a few days ago came out with her cause of death, and they said it was old age. Now, that's something you don't hear a lot about because normally we're able to pinpoint it. It was, you know, she had heart disease or heart failure or pneumonia or cancer, right? All of these other things that we know can certainly hit us when we, we get into our 90s. But for Queen Elizabeth, it was old age. And one of the thing, things I thought was really interesting about her is that I think what kept her healthy and living longer all of these years is she definitely had a sense of purpose. Her life certainly had meaning. She dedicated her life, as she said in many speeches, to the people of the United Kingdom. And also she had a great sense of resiliency. You know, she was part of that greatest generation that lived through the Nazi tyranny and World War II, the, all the bombing that happened in London. And she was able to really find that resiliency, of course, led by example by her parents, King George and, and her mother, Queen Elizabeth. And so I think, you know, if we could take a snapshot on and take some secrets to living longer, I think that she certainly is a role model for some of these things because there were certainly a lot of things throughout her reign and her life that could have really devastated her, but she was able to keep calm and carry on, as the British say. So anyway, it, you know, one of the things I think is really important for us to understand is that part of being human is encountering a lot of very tough times and a lot of difficulty and challenges every day. So this is just part of the survival process. And when we think about how we're raising our children or how we're coping today, the elimination of anything that is bad in our life, any pain, any fears, any failures, don't actually help us build the resiliency and the survival techniques that we need. And we also don't appreciate the better times better unless we've really known some of the tougher times. And again, this is just part of the human experience. And so it's really important to understand that, yes, while we certainly don't want to encounter negative things or things that really impact us, particularly emotionally, being able to survive that makes us definitely stronger. We learn a lot from it. We're able to maybe be grateful, maybe to give back to others with the knowledge of that experience. But, you know, without failure, hurt, and pain, we can't have resiliency, success, pleasure, happiness, and love. So I just thought I'd leave you with that thought on emotional health. There's also another great book that I would recommend if you feel like you are struggling and you really need some great insights. It's Martin Seligman, 
who is kind of known as the father of positive psychology. And he wrote a book called Learned Optimism. I love that book. I read it, of course, many years ago, reread it again for the research for my upcoming book. But I would really highly recommend that book to anyone who feels like maybe they need a little bit more insight and, you know, you kind of like to read. And he's just got some wonderful, wonderful thoughts, really talking about how we need to find purpose, find value, find meaning in our life. So the other thing happening in October is it's National Work Family Month. Interesting, right? How they put work first. Hmm. How about National Family Work Month? Anyway, but it's National Work Family Month. And I wanted to just highlight some of the emotional support programs and benefits and things that employers are doing. But I wanted to start with a report that came out earlier this year in 2022. It was from the American Psychological Association. And every year, they put out an annual report on stress and how it's impacting Americans. And this particular report, though, was on work and well-being. And it was a survey that they did among employees across the country in all different types of industries and jobs. And one of the things that is really interesting is that they found that, and by the way, let's just not forget that one in six employees are caregiving for an older parent or grandparent right now. We know that number will go up because as we live longer and people need more help with caregiving, the employer in the workplace really need to address this. A lot of employers are, have some best practices, but it's just something that's going to happen. But here's what the survey found, which I thought was really interesting. 81% of the employees that were surveyed said that they would actually want to work for an employer who supported mental health and they feel like it's a really important consideration for them when they're looking for a new position or a new job. So again, I think, you know, particularly a lot of our younger generation employees are looking for these types of supports and benefits from employers. So it's something to think about out there. The other thing is that, you know, so some of the great programs Ginger, which is a teletherapy service, and then Headspace, which is an app based on meditation and mindfulness, they actually merged to form a company called Headspace Health, and it's a $3 billion valued company, but they do a lot of work with employers where they've now combined the teletherapy services with, of course, the app of meditation and calm and and some of these other ones. And calm is certainly another app that a lot of employers use and a lot of companies use for their customers. Like I know, um, I can't remember if it was JetBlue or one of the airlines actually adopted calm that you can access on the plane. And then Meeklibrium, and I've interviewed some of the key executives over there. They also do a really great job and have a really great app. And, you know, of course, every time there is something good, we're going to see those celebrities jump in. By the way, I have a whole kind of a commentary in my book about some of the celebrities who have really positioned themselves, if you will, as wellness gurus. That's a really fun kind of chapter to read. But Selena Gomez, who has talked very openly about her mental health struggles, she just created a startup company called Wondermine. They just got their first round of funding. And interestingly enough, Serena Williams, the tennis player, the phenomenal tennis player who just recently announced her retirement, she's one of the key investors in this company. But what they're doing is they're doing a newsletter. They're kind of forming an online social community. They're going to do a podcast and some other things, and they're going to try to bring more awareness and destigmatize mental health particularly, I think, again, for younger women. So you can look for that. And then, you know, Prince Harry, again, Queen Elizabeth, he's been in the news a lot. He's the chief impact officer for Better Up, 
Now, BetterUp is actually a startup that is a coaching platform. So in a similar way, like uh, Airbnb or Match.com, where you go on and you have your list of criteria and your needs and you get matched up with a therapist or a coach or a counselor. That's what that platform is all about. And it's really about mental health issues. And a lot of employers are also looking at that type of benefit for their employees. And then, as I mentioned, just to finish out our caregiver wellness news, Breast Cancer Awareness Month, you know, as we know, many women are affected by this. But the good news is, is that with prevention and with good diagnostics and really more knowledge about our breast health, we've really been able to decrease the number of deaths from breast cancer. And so I found a statistic. So since 1990, studies have shown that annual mammograms have saved between 384,000 and 614,000 lives. And so it's a very survivable disease if we catch it in those early stages. And by the way, breast cancer also affects men. There are men who can have breast cancer. So it's really important, again, to do your self-exams, understand your family history, because that has a really strong tie to your risk factor. Be active, you know, try to stay active. And then if you do have, for instance, fibrocystic breast tissue, which is really dense, or family history, any of that, you want to make sure you're getting your annual mammograms and keeping up to speed on any changes that may be happening for Breast Cancer Awareness Month. So now let's turn to Active Aging Week, which is October 3rd through the 9th. And I have a wonderful interview with Lawrence Kosick, a good friend and a co-founder of Get Set Up, which, as I mentioned, is an online platform for older adults to have lifelong learning opportunities and to upskill for encore careers but also to connect socially for better emotional health. So here's my interview with Lawrence. So I'm really thrilled to have our expert guest on today, who is Lawrence Kosick from Get Set Up. And, you know, we talk a lot about lifelong learning and staying connected. And I think what Lawrence is going to share with us today is this is truly one of those great solutions out there, both for, for us as family caregivers, but also for our older loved ones. And so, Lawrence, I just want to welcome you to Caregiving Club on Air. Sherry, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here today. So as I mentioned to you, we always ask our guests, the first question is, where are we talking to you from today? Oh, that's a wonderful question. Usually I'm based in the San Francisco Bay Area, but because of our business being entirely remote, we travel a lot to visit the learners and the employees wherever they might be. The founding team travels a lot. I'm currently in Park City, Utah, but on my way back to the Bay Area by the end of the week. Beautiful. Oh, I love Park City. It's such a good. And, you know, people think about it for skiing, but I think it's probably even more beautiful right now, right? It's wonderful in the summer. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, anyway, again, I'm really excited to have you share with our audience what Get Set Up is all about. So tell us a little bit about what is Get Set Up. So Get Set Up is a social learning platform for older adults, of which I consider myself one. Let's call it the 50 plus crowd. I'm 54, full disclosure. Yeah, I'm in that group too. <laughs> yep, yep. We both find ourselves there. So there's three founders at Get Set Up, and a little over two years ago, you know, we were struggling with how do we help our parents? I have a father who's actually 93, but for a number of years, he's had a voracious appetite for learning tech, for which I was not. And my co-founders with their parents, we, none of us were really good sort of geek squads for our parents, if you will, right? And so we thought to ourselves, well, 
there needs to be a better place for all of us to learn safely, securely, meet others, connect with others. There's that kind of a platform for almost every other age group and demographic. And why is there nothing for this one? And so we set out to start Get Set Up as a place where older adults could come and learn and feel comfortable with learning from others that were like them in a similar age. And that was a little over two years ago. It was pre-pandemic. We thought this was a big problem and opportunity then. Little did we know a pandemic was going to arrive and change our life and our trajectory. But that is how we got started. Well, and I love that. And you're absolutely right. I think we had no idea the explosion of going online, whether it was just catching up with friends or, as you said, you know, helping people learn new things. What I think is really fascinating with what you've done, and maybe you can give us a sense of the types of classes or the types of conversations that are going on on the platform that you have. It started, as you mentioned, with tech, which, of course, is very essential. And I think it's great for you know, older adults to be able to talk to other older adults and kind of, you know, share with each other tips and tricks. But you've really expanded. I mean, there's cooking classes, there's, you know, meditation classes, there's all kinds of things. So tell us a little bit about the breadth of those kinds of categories that you offer. Sure. As the name would suggest, right, we did start with tech and it was, you know, how do we get you set up on whatever smart device you might have at home and get you comfortable with that. So if you had an iPhone, a tablet, Android, an old laptop, you know, how could we help you feel comfortable enough to sort of get into your first video class? Because if we could do that, if we could solve that sort of first mile problem and get somebody into their first video session, it would open up a whole new universe of anything and everything that they could conceivably learn. And what do we all want to do when we get comfortable, you know, with our tech and get ourselves into our first class? We get comfortable with that. We meet new people. We might have some fun. We might come back to some classes with those folks. And then we decide, hey, listen, this is a great media. What what else can I do with this? And so we use the opportunity of our sort of virtual platform to survey the learners and ask them, what else would you like to learn? And of course, we got, you know, and we still do each and every day, we get a lot of suggestions. And people would give us suggestions well beyond basic tech. You know, I want to learn how to meditate. I want to learn how to cook healthy meals at home. I want to learn how to manage a chronic illness. I want to learn how to play a brain game. I just want to meet people because I live in a rural area and I'm lonely. And so we just found such interesting use cases. And what we did is when somebody sent in a suggestion, we'd create a little class card and we'd put it up on the website. And once we got 50 people who would click on the notify me, we use that as sort of a proxy for interest. And then within sort of seven to 10 days, we'd find an instructor and we'd turn that into curriculum that we'd offer on the platform. And so it quickly became a whole lot more than tech. It became fitness and health and wellness and nutrition and job skills and fun and entertainment. And it became a wonderful sort of community, if you will. But the suggestions came from the learners. Which I love because you're really creating for the people that you want to support, right? You know, tell us again, because I know that you you do have experts, of course, that will go through these sessions with everybody and kind of teach and train them certain things. But then you also have classes that are being taught by the people that are on the platform. So it's a very democratized and, you know, social kind of thing where people can be both the learners, but also the experts. Yeah, this surprised us, actually. I don't know why it did, but we realized that after 
somebody took five, 10, 15 classes, which in some cases can happen in one week, right? Folks have some time. They find an instructor that they love or several, and they take a bunch of classes. And then they get comfortable and confident, and many of them raise their hand, and they say, I'm a retired doctor, lawyer, teacher, nurse, yoga instructor. Can I either teach a class on the platform or host a discussion group or a social hour? And, and I name those three quite specifically because in some cases, there's academic classes for which you need to be credentialed, and we provide some reskilling, and you conduct a very sort of organized academic class. But there are a lot of things on the platform that are less academic in nature, and they're more fun and entertaining, right? So you don't need a degree to host a social hour, but folks love to come for those because, you know, it's a little less about learning. Sometimes it's about learning, but it's more social and coming and and discussing something that's near and dear to your heart. It could be a photography class where you're showing pictures from your last vacation, or it could be, you know, a support group, but there's all sorts of different kinds of sessions on the platform that allow for almost anybody and almost everybody to either teach and learn in a structured format, but also have more fun in a social format. Well, I love the exploration aspect of Get Set Up. Like you said, you might come for one thing that you're learning to cook a healthy meal or or whatever it is, but then you get to explore and find all these other opportunities and worlds. And I think it's very different, you know, because when we think about our loved ones who may live in senior living, there's activities, but the activities are very focused, like, okay, today we're going to do this. Whereas this is very much driven by the individual. You get to go search out all the different things that you may want to join. So tell us a little bit about, you mentioned that people do more than one class. What are you seeing in terms of the usage? Are people, what are some of the trends that you see? So that is a really big question because, you know, depending on sort of the age cohort, if you will, the 50 to say 65, 70-ish range of our demographic oftentimes take different classes than the upper end of the age range. Like, so for example, folks who are, you know, 55, 60, 65, sometimes even 70, they either may still want to work or they may still need to work right? So that portion of the demographic seems very interested in learning some additional tech skills. They might want to learn about Gmail or Facebook or or social media marketing or how to build a website or how to improve their LinkedIn profile, which is your digital resume of today. So that is a interesting cohort. They take one kind of class or one group of classes. But we see a lot of folks who, once they just get comfortable with tech, it becomes basic sort of discovery. And they may want to do all manners of things, which is learn a little bit of tech, learn a little bit of fitness and healthy cooking, healthy eating. They've now been introduced to this medium that allows sort of information and classes to come into their home. And I think the pandemic, one of the few good things that it did was it introduced, it changed behavior because suddenly we had a demographic that had to stay at home. We had to quarantine. And now we had to figure out how to do, you know, our banking from home. We had to do all of our cooking. We had to have our groceries delivered. We have to figure out how to use telehealth, all sorts of interesting services that we were sort of forced to get out of our comfort zone and go and learn. Well, okay. So once we figure that out, what are the other fun things we can do if we've now discovered this new mechanism? And so the different age ranges we've found sort of access different things and are interested in either solving different for different use cases, but we welcome all of that. 
Well, and I love the fact that you do have a little bit of a different things for different age groups. Maybe like you said, the, the reskilling for people who are in their 50s, 60s or 70s that, you know, want to either go back to work or start their own business or become entrepreneurs or whatever. I did a research project a few years ago with USC Digital Body Computing Center, and it was all around rideshare and, and, you know, using Lyft for social activity and all that kind of stuff. What was fascinating is we had about seven to eight people in our research study that were in their 90s, and all of them were really interested in learning how to use the app to call up a Lyft ride or a rideshare versus we also offered a landline. I'm curious, what is the top end of your age group? And what would you tell listeners out there who may be family caregivers and say, you know, my mom or my dad, they're just too old to learn technology and it's just too tough. What would you say? I would reflect on my own personal experience, which is when I'm trying to help my dad with something, and there's now a variety of technical topics he could probably help me with because he's taken so many classes. But your Uber and Lyft example is a great one because there's so many companies today that think that they need to create sort of a vastly different experience for their older adults, which is the example you provided, like an 800 number if somebody wants to access a ride. So a caregiver or the older adult themselves would call this 800 number. But we found exactly as you did, a lot of them would like to actually learn how to use this technology in the way that it was originally envisioned to be used. How do we use this app? And we do believe that once you provide some of those sort of technical basics, not always, but a lot of time, we do these live interactive classes where we show them how to download the app and then how to configure the app and go through all of the settings and how do you book a ride safely, just sort of continuing on with Uber as an example. That should be a great indicator for the large companies to realize if you provide education and onboarding for this demographic, They'll learn how to use your tech and they'll learn how to use your apps and your website. And do not forget that this is the fastest growing part of our population. So it's also good business for these companies to learn how to provide sort of these education and onboarding services because it's a huge part of the population. I think that was the thing that jumped out at us in the the study is that, you know, once you provide the training, which is what you're doing it's kind of off to the races. I mean, older adults don't reject technology. They just aren't digital natives, right? They need a little bit of help figuring it out because they didn't grow up with all this technology. But once they kind of get the hang of it, I think they are huge, you know, consumers of a lot of the technology out there. As we're talking, and a lot of our listeners are, as I mentioned, either family caregivers or have an older parent or grandparent, I know that you have a subscription service, but you also offer classes through libraries and offices on aging. I mean, you're working with so many different organizations. Tell our listeners, what are the ways that they can find Get Set Up for their older loved ones? Well, for starters, there are always free classes on the platform. So if a caregiver, family member, a loved one wants to introduce an older adult, or if they themselves want to come to the platform, come to getsetup.org, getsetup.io. Both of those addresses will work. You'll see a bunch of really interesting free classes that you can take and try. And what we've tried to do, because we realize that older adults are just getting comfortable with some of this basic tech. We realized early on that introducing sort of an immediate paywall and subscription service 
was sort of further complication and a further sort of technical hurdle. And so we quickly went to the two sort of categories that we know that care about this population and have funding for this population. And that is several government organizations and of course, healthcare plans. And we said, we would like to partner with you to help subsidize the cost of these classes for as much of our population as we can. And so we have a lot of state agency partnerships. We don't have every state, but we've got a lot and we've got a lot of health plans, I think 57 plus. And so if we can find a way to take a, an existing or new user and assign them to a partner who will reimburse them, that is the first thing we try to do because then they don't have to pay anything. And then as a last resort, if they truly want access to the full catalog and we can't find a state or a healthcare plan for which they belong to assign them to, then there is a subscription option. We want that almost to be sort of the last resort. We'd like them to be able to take these classes subsidized by either one of their state governments, a local area agency, or a healthcare plan. I live here in Orange County in California, and I know that you've done some work with the Orange County Office on Aging, even providing for lower income seniors, the actual, I think it's the tablets and the service so that they can, you know, easily get on, which is wonderful. I'm curious, Lawrence, are there any classes that have been recommended by some of your users or the things that you guys have thought up, you know, internally as part of your team that are really different, that are really kind of out there or something that you wouldn't have expected? Is there anything kind of beyond the norm? (laughs) I would put a lot of them into that category because I think that when you allow an empowered learner to make suggestions on what they would like or want or need to learn, I don't think we can forecast or understand sort of the level of variety that that creates. And so we've seen a lot of dance classes My dad loves to watch Bollywood dance classes that are hosted by our guides in India when he can't sleep. He just finds that they're so full of joy. He loves that. You know, there's singing classes. There's interesting sort of brain game classes. The things that surprised me was, and they're less academic in nature, but we found that as the community grew, meaning people were taking classes in an interactive format, which means they could talk to each other, which meant that they started forming bonds and making friends. And one of the things that surprised us was that after they became friends, they would come back and take classes together and they would almost become support groups for each other. And if somebody was, you know, going through a painful time in their life, the group would come together and support them. And it could have been an illness. It could be a surgery. It could have been a death in the family. And suddenly they have this virtual community that supports them. That's their network. And I think that surprised us, the number of support groups that we saw on the platform. But there's a lot of wonderful suggestions that we see every day around travel and photography and arts and crafts and cooking and learning different games. And, you know, and if there's not a teacher for it, sometimes the learner themselves will say, well, I'll give it a try. And those are fun. Well, and, you know, and I love the fact that you touched upon the friendships and the relationships. And as we know, there's actually a great book coming out at the beginning of the year from two of the Harvard researchers who have been involved in the adult development study that's been going on now for, I think, 85 years. And the one commonality that we find with people who live longer is that they have quality 
relationships in their life. And as we know, as we age, I, I was just even talking to my mom recently, and she's had a couple friends that she's lost. And we can lose friends in different ways. They move to another city for a job or whatever it is. But when you get older, it gets harder. And I think there is a sense of feeling alone and isolation. And, you know, that's one of the things I think that is such an added benefit. You know, we're talking about learning and connections, but really it's about reducing that loneliness and social isolation. Tell us a little bit about that. We never really thought about positioning ourselves as a place to reduce loneliness and social isolation. We thought about it being a place that empowers older adults to do and learn whatever it is they needed and wanted to learn, right? Now, when you offer that in a live interactive format, and much in the same way you and I are talking now, connections form, bonds form, people become friends, and they come back and they take classes together. And so we saw people coming for the learning and staying for the socialization. And so we realized as, as our government partners and health plans, they would ask us, do you think you're reducing loneliness and social isolation? And we would stop and we'd think about it. We'd reply, well, if the average learner meets five new friends in their first month, that's five friends that they didn't have before. So I'd argue that we reduce loneliness to some extent, right? And if they're coming back and taking those classes together, that's a wonderful outcome. So while we didn't really set out to do that, because we always want the message to be sort of empowering and uplifting, that can be and is a very powerful sort of byproduct of just educating people in a social environment where they create bonds and come together. And so are all of the classes live? So they're not necessarily, quote unquote, on demand where you could go and watch them later. Or are they? Is there a combination of the two? Yeah. So we, we, no, we try to have a combination because not everybody can get to the, that live class at a certain time. So they want the ability to come back and watch it later. Or we also noticed that folks wanted to review the class. So they took it and then they wanted to watch it again. And so we thought, well, you know, if we're, we're going to record that class for them and send it afterwards, then, you know, that's an on-demand class that sort of satisfies that. But we really wanted to sort of hang our hat on sort of live interactive first, and then on-demand if you wanted it or needed it later. But the combination actually worked quite nicely. And because you mentioned the term sort of lifelong learner at the beginning of this segment, we noticed that as we sort of segment our demographics, that our female audience, which is much more than half, they identify as lifelong learners, but the, the men don't. Oh, really? Oh, that's interesting. There's no men we've ever surveyed. Uh, maybe there's a handful that identifies lifelong learners. But if you ask the question in a different way, would you like to learn this or solve this problem or fix this issue? That's when a man says, yes, I would like to learn that. I would like to do that. I'd like to solve that problem. And so that's a messaging and positioning thing. But that has definitely been something that we've, that we've learned. Women think about themselves more holistically as lifelong learners. Men generally do not. Right. That was fascinating. That It almost kind of reminds me of, you know, being in the car, right? Women will ask for directions or, you know, look things up on a, a GPS map, or whatever. And men are just like, no, I've, I'll figure this That's out. That's right. We're going to chance it. We're going to chance it, <laughs> Sherry, and see how that goes for us. Use That's well. right. I love that. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Well, Lawrence, it's just been wonderful talking to you and learning more about this. So remind our listeners again where they can find out more about Get Set Up. If you have a, an older friend, family, or loved one 
we would love you to introduce them to Get Set Up, and you can find us at www.getsetup.org, getsetup.org. Come and visit us, and we'd love to have anybody that's an older adult or, or looking to learn something new with, with others just like us in a fun, friendly place. We'd love to have you. Great. Well, again, Lawrence, thanks for being on the show today. We really appreciate it. And I just think it's a marvelous opportunity. And as you said, technology really opens the doors for so much that we can do now, and particularly as we're aging. So thanks again. And just for our listeners, again, it's getsetup.org. And you should check it out because it's really great. Thanks, Lawrence. Thanks, Sherry. Appreciate you having me. For our Wellhome Design News, as I mentioned, Aging in Place Week is October 12th through the 16th. And also in October, we are also recognizing National Long-Term Care Planning Month as well as Financial Planning Month. And as we know, there are so many finances that are tied up in our home. So I thought these two topics really fit well together. Now, for those of you who may not be familiar with that term, aging in place, I'm not really a huge fan of that term. It's something that is used a lot in our world of aging and gerontology and people who are doing home building and other things. But really what that term means is for people who want to stay living in their homes as independently and as long as possible. And we know from surveys that ARP and other organizations have done, we know this is really the desire of most older Americans is that rather than look at some of the senior living options that are out there, we would rather stay in our homes as long as possible. And so what that's going to require, though, is we're going to have to make some modifications and we're going to have to adapt those homes. And that's going to require a little bit of financial planning, which is why I kind of tied these two things together. Now, there are some programs and things out there that will kind of help give you some insights as to five and 10 year increments. What are the things that maybe you should start thinking about in your home in your 40s or 50s that are going to help you stay living there in your 70s, 80s, and 90s. We don't want to have all of that financial burden kind of cave in on us as we get older. It's better if we can kind of pace it out and make certain modifications and different changes, you know, throughout the years. We have upcoming Rosemary Rosetti, who is a national expert on universal design and doing all this. But before we talk to Rosemary, I wanted to just read you a few statistics. So First of all, we know that one in three adults over the age of 65 currently has problems with at least one feature in their home. And one of the things that we talk a lot about is that, you know, a lot of the homes that our older parents or grandparents are living in, maybe even some of ourselves, were built in the 1980s. In fact, nearly half the homes in the U.S. were built before 1980. And 38% of the homes were built before 1970. So if you haven't done a lot of changes and made some upgrades in your home, these homes really are needing for us to adapt them and modify them. And this is why we call a lot of these homes Peter Pan homes, because they were really built for people who will never grow old, which we know is not happening. So we do know that the households with someone over the age of 80 who will be living in them is going to double in the next few years. In fact, by 2037, that number of people age 80 living at home is going to double to about 14 million adults who are over 80. So it's really imperative that we put these plans together and we start taking a look at some of these things. And, you know, there's 100 million U.S. homes and only 1% of them have any kind of universal design feature. Now, Rosemarie is going to tell us a lot more about universal design, but 
just really quickly, I've written some articles about universal design, but also I call it kind of well-home design because I like to blend the universal design principles that we'll hear about with a lot of the wellness aspects of environmental health and home design that are out there. So I'm going to have some links to those articles. I've also written about dementia-friendly home design. I'll have that article. And, you know, this is becoming kind of one of my biggest educational webinar topics. I get asked to do this kind of room by room. Let's take a look at the things that will not only adapt our homes and make it easier as we age, but also that well home design that I've been talking about a lot. So just let me give you some quick tips on universal design. There's kind of like four A's when we think about universal design. So it is how to make the home ageless, how to make the home you know, adaptable, how to make the home accessible, and also how to make the home more assistive. You know, as I mentioned, Rose uh, Marie Rossetti is one of our national experts on this. In fact, she created something called the Universal Design Living Lab, which also happens to be her home. So she's going to take us through that and kind of give us a, a virtual tour that we can, you know, do those word pictures in our mind as she's talking. But she's also going to give us some great links to her website so we can go check out videos and take a look at all the photos and things. And I think one of the things that is really key about this concept of adapting and modifying our older loved ones' homes is it can be beautiful. This is not yesteryear where, you know, the grab bars are ugly and all that kind of stuff. This is really beautiful design. Rosemary is certainly going to take us through all that. So without further ado, here's my interview with Rosemary Rossetti. Well, I am really excited to introduce our guest today, who is Rosemarie Rossetti, who is a, a real, one of the thought leaders, if you will, one of the key people in the country who really understands universal design. And she's got a unique story about how she came into this space and also what she's doing now to currently really passionately advocate for universal design in really all of our homes. So Rosemarie, welcome to Caregiving Club on Air. Well, thank you, Sherry. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, the first question, as I mentioned, that I always ask all of our guests is, where are we talking to you from today? Well, I'm speaking to you from my home in Columbus, Ohio, from my wheelchair. I am speaking to you from the National Demonstration Home and Garden, the Universal Design Living Laboratory, which is where my husband, Mark, and I live. I want to get into that because I think this story is so fascinating. And for those listeners, we are going to talk a little bit about how Rosemary and her husband, as she said, live in a lab, but it also happens to be their home. But Rosemary, tell us a little bit about your story and the background in terms of how, you know, all of this came about with you really needing to embrace universal design in your home. Well, I think people need to understand why I'm in this wheelchair. If that hadn't happened, the path that I took would never have brought me to universal design. But in June of 1998, I was suddenly struck by a 7,000 pound tree while riding my bicycle. So that's where the story really begins. It was our third wedding anniversary. My husband, Mark, was with me. He heard what he thought was a loud gunshot. He tried to warn me but the tree was falling and suddenly I am crushed and left paralyzed from the waist down by this gigantic tree. So uh, coming back home from the hospital from the summer of 98, now with a spinal cord injury and in a wheelchair for the first time. And that was the rude awakening, coming home to a home that we had thought was gonna be our forever home, but 
We didn't know what we didn't know. We were naive when we built that home and we had a lot of struggles, a lot of problems. We did some modifications, but we knew long-term it was not going to be the house for us. So we just had to have that real serious talk. Is this going to be a permanent injury? Will I ever walk again? And the prognosis was it's very unlikely. There are no cures for this. And so what are we going to do? We're going to look for a house that might be existing on the market and just sell the house and move, or we're going to build something new. And we made the decision to build something new. We had no idea it was going to be a national demonstration home. It was just going to be a home to replace what we were going to sell. Well, what I love about your story is that you literally could have been crushed emotionally, your soul, by what happened to you with this you know, terrific accident. But instead, you really turned it into this inspiring story about how we can take those challenges in life and really adapt and have some really great things come out of it. And one of the things I loved when I read about your story is that your husband is quite tall. And you mentioned you're a lot shorter now that you're sitting in your wheelchair. So tell us about then how the two of you came to build what we now know is the Universal Design Living Laboratory, your new home. Well, it was an idea that came to Mark and I at a mastermind meeting. Now, these were fellow professional speakers and consultants. In our first meeting in January of 2005, we were meeting for the first time and we had introduced ourselves. We had said we we're going to build a house. And they said, why don't you make it a national model? Why don't you make it not only accessible, but also green? And then why don't you get corporate sponsors to get involved with you? And then why don't you become a national speaker for universal design and green building? And then you can write articles and books about it. And it was <laughs> like, are you kidding me? What a big idea this group came up with. And Mark and I were just taking notes furiously with this idea of could we do this and how would we do this? So it was a long journey. Realize this was in 2005 in January when the idea was presented to create it as a demonstration home. And we had already hired an architect in September of 2004 to begin the process of designing our new home. And now it was going to be a much bigger project. Right. You know, hopefully we'll be able to share some of the photos that you have. I think one of the things that people think about when they they either don't know about universal design, I want you to explain to us and our listeners what that really means. But if they do know a little bit, they think, oh, you know, I, I'm not old yet. I don't need that yet. And yet the whole purpose of universal design is that it's ageless, right? It can work for anybody at any age. So tell us about what is universal design in the home. You've got it. It's designed for all. It's universally designed to be usable by all people, regardless of if they have a disability or not. It's for all ages and all abilities. Think of it as a framework of design. And why don't we have this as a standard? Five years from now, we'll just say design, that's all. It's all universal design. It's products and it's environments. It can be environments in the public spaces, environments in the workplaces, environments in the homes and condos and apartments, so that we as a society are building things that will accommodate us throughout our entire life cycle. 
Well, and so tell us some of the specifics, because again, when I saw photos of your home, I didn't immediately say, oh, this is, you know, built for somebody who needs that accessibility or, or whatever. It's just beautiful. And it's got a lot of functionality in it. So take us through, I think what people are obviously most interested in are kitchens and bathrooms. Tell us specifically what you did in those areas to incorporate this universal design. And if you want to see it for yourself, we do have a virtual tour. So after this interview, please go to our website, which is udll.com for the Universal Design Living Laboratory, and just click on the virtual tour. And you can actually go room by room at your own pace, anytime on any electronic device to see it. Oh, I love that. (laughs) And you can actually play a game. We had a cat that was loose that day. So Kiko was running around. She's a little orange cat and you'll see her in many of the rooms. So look for our cat. (laughs) There's also a video tour that Mark did and narrated. So there's lots of ways to see our home. Plus there's over a hundred articles illustrated fully. So there's a lot of history there in terms of what this house has. As you look at the home, it's a, a Frank Lloyd Wright inspired prairie style architecture. It's got the arts and crafts look about it. It is a um, a 3,500 square foot home on the main floor. And that's where we're participating. Our living space for the most part is on the first floor with equivalents of four bedrooms, but two of the bedrooms are converted to my office and Mark's office. Now the lower level is also 3,500 square feet and we have room for If we wanted to turn it into another bedroom for a caregiver, right now it's our exercise rooms. We have a full bath and shower and a full classroom holding 22 people where we do continuing education programming. The house is accessible by wheelchair from all of the entrances. There's no steps. They're just very gentle slopes, a one in 20 slope. And the thresholds are no higher than a half inch. And our doors are all 36 inches wide. So those are the kind of standards as you're looking at the house in general to say what is different about this house. And sometimes people come, we've had over 3,600 people actually touring our home in person. And when they're here, they just say, Rosemary, we just had no idea these features were integrated into your home. They're seamless and they're not institutional. Right. And I think that's kind of the big thing. We're going to talk about a couple of manufacturers and companies and brands that are really focusing on that. But tell us a little bit, if our listeners are interested in in really adopting universal design, what are the things that they should know? I think one of the things you and I kind of talked about on email is that you have to choose the right contractor. You have to have somebody who really knows how to do this because not everybody really has that background and training. Tell us a little bit about what they should look for in the contractors and people they should use. Yeah, let's start with a design team. You don't always have to have an architect. You can just hire a builder and they can have their own architect on staff to work with you. There could be a model that you saw somewhere that looks like it's going to accommodate your needs. So those are some ideas in terms of seeing something that you do like and getting the plans for that to build it. So we need a full design team. Should your family members have some sort of a illness or an injury that causes some mobility issues or some hearing or some vision loss, 
then you might want to put an occupational therapist on that design team. Of particular note are the kitchen and bath. That's where the more details in terms of the products, in terms of the heights of counters, in terms of the spacing and the reach and the knee space. So if you can find someone that's really, really sharp on universal design in the kitchen and bath, that would be the person to put on your team. So looking at the design team from the aspect of either putting one together that never existed before or finding the right builder or remodeler that already has in place these professionals and just go with them to work with you on that design. Check with their credentials and check with prior contacts, prior customers. And I like to look at the most recent ones, not those that were five years ago, asking for referrals for their most recent finished universal design project and interview those families to find out, did it really meet your expectations or exceed them? Would you ever recommend them again to another person? And I think that's just great advice. So what we're looking for is somebody who's representing themselves as really understanding, and they're going to use words like universal design, maybe aging in place or the certifications, you know, that they should ask about. But the other thing I think our listeners are curious about is, you know, does this cost a lot more? If you're going to remake your kitchen anyway, or remake, you know, do over your bathroom, is it going to cost you a lot more to incorporate the universal design? Not necessarily. If you're going to start from scratch as a, a new design phase, the design doesn't cost any more because you're using universal design. Looking at the products, you're going to be looking at taller toilets. There's not any more difference in the cost of having a toilet that's 15 inches from the seat to the floor versus 17 inches from the seat to the floor. You're not going to recognize that. As you're looking at putting in wider doors, we recommend a 36 inch door throughout the interior so that you have value in the house. You now can get into each of the rooms without any problems, hopefully with mobility devices, power wheelchairs, scooters, manual wheelchairs, as well as walkers. So does a 36 inch wide door cost more than a 32 inch door or a 28 inch door? Don't look at it that way. It might be a $10 per door difference. Big deal. Look at the value of that home over time versus having to remodel that whole entrance to the bathroom or the bedroom at over $1,000 for each entry. So do it right from the beginning. Well, and I think, you know, we know that a lot of our older parents or grandparents live in homes that they've been living in for a long time. And so they don't accommodate some of these, these things that we need. And so if you're going to help them and look to remake those things anyway, you know, it is important. And, and again, I think often we think about how our lives are right now today. And, you know, we don't know what's coming, but we do know that as we get older, we're going to need a little bit more help. So why not make it easy? I mean, for me, I think about things like pull out shelves or pull down shelves. I mean, I wish I had those 10 or 15 years ago, you know, to make life a little easier. Now they're becoming really needed. But I think those things are, we shouldn't shy away from incorporating that into our homes. 
Yes, and they're do-it-yourself projects in terms of could you buy the hardware for a pull-down shelf in one of your kitchen or bathroom cabinets and have a good handyman. It might be someone that lives in the house that's good with tools and can read directions. Actually install a pull-down shelf, absolutely. And then some simple fixes on doorways, they're swing-away hinges. They are so inexpensive for about $50 at the hardware store. You take your existing door hinges off, that's very easy, and you put the new hinges on and you can get up to two to five more inches of clearance without having to do anything else. Just moving that door hinge puts that door a little farther back, giving you a, a much better access into that room. Right. So you mentioned earlier, you know, that it doesn't have to look like an institutional grab bar or whatever. It can be beautiful. We know there's so many wonderful manufacturers out there. But in particular, we talked a little bit about Lowe's, who now has a whole section called the Livable Home. And I want to have you talk to us a little bit about that because you were featured in their premier magazine on the Livable Home. And then also recently Pottery Barn, which I love announced their accessible home line. And so tell us a little bit about what you're seeing both from those specific manufacturers, but also in general, do you think that a lot of the companies and and manufacturers out there are starting to wise up that we have a much, you know, an increasingly older population who's going to need these things and we want to make them beautiful? Yes, absolutely. That's the population and there's money to be had. That 65, 68 year old sweet spot in terms of who's buying, who's remodeling. I had some data recently from someone that is in the know in the bath industry. And he said, you know, they're spending $15,000 to remodel their bathroom on an average. And so why not get the business? So Lowe's not only will sell you the products for your bathroom, they will also refer you to the installation contractor. So it's all in one. And they stand then to gain a lot more profit because now not only are they selling the toilet, but they're also selling the service to install and help in that remodel. So, and that's a great way to go, right? Because now you have confidence that that person that they're recommending obviously knows what they're doing. You don't have to do a lot of the, the questions. And then what do you think about Pottery Barn and their latest line? Yes, they've got some uh, home office furniture, they've got some kitchen, they've got some bath. They've expanded to showcase things that maybe they've always had, but now they're putting it all together in a special website to say, hey, we now understand that this market is looking for furniture and cabinetry that you can roll under in a wheelchair, easy hardware, the type that are C handles and D handles, that are easier for someone with arthritis or paralysis. And so they're just highlighting some things and they worked with some specialized designers to create some new products for them. Well, in some of these things, I know this was a question I just thought up in my head we hadn't talked about, but you know, some of these things too, either might enhance your resale value, if you might be thinking about that, but it certainly doesn't hurt it, correct? I mean, you do so much work in this space. Who wouldn't want a newly remodeled bathroom with a nice curbless shower? I mean, why not? They look more modern than an older one. And putting in a curbless shower just makes sense. To have a 36-inch wide opening, 
to have the drain either in the back or the front or the sides, not the center drain, but a trench drain or a channel drain. The water gets out very quickly. And then having a built-in seat and having the hand shower with the adjustable knobs and the adjustable vertical bars, as well as some safety bars, some grab bars throughout that shower. Well, and you mentioned earlier that your home, the Universal Design Living Lab, is based on Frank Lloyd Wright type of aesthetic. I don't know if you've seen recently the Frank Lloyd Wright collection for the bath. It's really high end. It's on my fantasy list because I think it's probably outside of my my range right now, but it's just gorgeous. And it brings in a lot of that wood and the rainfall shower and all of that. So I don't know if you've seen that, but I think that would be perfect. Who's the manufacturer for that? You know, it's the Frank Lloyd Wright collection. And I don't know who the actual maybe, you know, behind the scenes manufacturer is for it, but I'll send you some information. I came across it and I just thought, oh, this is just absolutely beautiful. And of course, you know, they've got it with the big wide windows in the bathroom on the greenery. And you just kind of feel like you're almost in the forest, very much his kind of aesthetic. So (laughs) yeah, it's really great stuff. So Rosemary, it's been so wonderful talking to you. And I want to just make sure I haven't missed anything. But as you mentioned, you've written a book, actually several books, I think, but you have a book specifically on universal design. You have lots of articles. I love the videos our listeners can go and watch. Where again can they find all this? Yeah, I'll give you a bonus for those who are listening today. You can get a free chapter of my book, The Universal Design Toolkit. And that chapter is a list of the universal design features in our home room by room. So go ahead and download that free chapter at udll.com, udll.com. And then when you go on that virtual tour, you can look at that chapter and follow along to see these features. Now, to buy the book, you can go to Amazon and they have the printed one. They'll ship it right out. If you prefer the PDF as an electronic version, that's packaged with 16 videos. And that is available at universaldesigntoolkit.com. Oh, wonderful. Well, we're going to have all of those links on our episode guide page. Rosemary, is there anything we didn't cover today that you feel is important for the audience to know about Universal Design? Yes, go to my website, rosemariespeaks.com. There's more there. You can see a lot of the videos. My TEDx would be a good one to watch. I am a speaker and I am a consultant. So if anyone has a project, they would like a plan review, Mark and I would love to work with you to help you with your project to make sure that the universal design features have been included, making life easier. Well, wonderful. And and as you said, you're the expert. So as our listeners are listening and you're thinking about this, you know, tap into the experts that are out there to help. And I think it's just something that we're going to hopefully see more and more because it makes so much sense for all of us to have some of these wonderful things in our homes for universal design. So Rosemary, thank you again for being on our podcast today. It's been really lovely talking to you. Oh, thank you, Sherry. It's been a privilege. Welcome to the Me Time Monday Wellness Hack. October 13th is World Vision Day and also Train Your Brain Day. Our Me Time Monday Wellness Hack this episode is all about how our eyes and our brains react to colors and how chromotherapy is a growing wellness practice. Anthropologists have found that the earliest humans decorated rocks with dyes to create special meaning with color. 
At least 160,000 years ago, ochre, which created the color red, was used in cave drawings and to paint stones used during rituals. By assigning value and meaning with color, we began our earliest form of language and storytelling. Some scientists believe our brains have their own Pantone color system. Yet when we apply color to our moods and emotions, we hit a nerve among experts. Color psychology is still much debated by the scientific community, mostly because there's no consensus on the application of color and emotions. The focal point of the debate centers on how different cultures view color that can shift the meaning. What scientists do agree on is that colors are seen via the retina and interpreted by the brain, and they have both physiological and psychological reactions. Studies show colors actually change alpha brainwaves. However, just as our wellness needs are very personalized and our Me Time Monday plans are very personalized for each of us, even the colors we choose to boost emotions or tie us to certain beliefs is very personal. So in summary, each of us have our own Pantone system. Now, back in 2015, a dress was posted to the internet that caused a national debate about what colors the dress actually was. Some saw it as blue-black, and others saw it as white-gold. So how could that be? Well, scientists were interviewed on TV and radio and newspapers and online and talked about this phenomenon known as color constancy. Because we interpret colors differently based on cultural, contextual, and color sensitivity perspectives, we see the dress differently. It can also be based on viewing the image in different environments, such as outside on your smartphone versus inside on a computer screen. Our brains compensate for the colors we are actually seeing. The fascination among psychologists and vision scientists is that the dress actually demonstrated how people do not see the world the same. We know we have political, cultural, moral, social, and other factors that keep us from seeing eye to eye. But now we have further scientific evidence that even looking at the same object, people see the colors differently. It is one of the reasons medical scientists dismiss color psychology. However, chromotherapy is starting to grab more attention these days from healthcare professionals. And by the way, the actual dress was black and blue, but I personally saw it as white and gold. As with many wellness and health trends, chromotherapy is not new. The godfather of chromotherapy is Edwin Babbitt, a 19th century American physician, spiritualist, and psychologist known at that time as psychophysicians. Babbitt's scientific explanation in the use of color for healing included identifying the color red as a stimulant, especially for blood and nerves, yellow and orange as nerve stimulants, and blue and violet as soothing and having anti-inflammatory properties. Babbitt prescribed red for paralysis, physical exhaustion, and chronic rheumatism, yellow as a laxative or nausea-inducing agent for bronchial difficulties, and blue for inflammatory conditions, sciatica, meningitis, nervous instability, headache, irritability, and sunstroke. He was also the first to identify that red stimulates the sympathetic nervous system and the ancient brain, 
And blue triggers the parasympathetic nervous system, or also known as the new brain, to create a calming effect for stress responses. Essentially, much of Babbitt's scientific exploration has led to today's understanding of circadian rhythms, the light and dark cycles of sleep science, and visual processing and ultraviolet radiation effects. And more recently, science is turning to chromotherapy as a therapeutic treatment that uses the visible color spectrum of electromagnetic radiation to cure diseases, including the advancements made in red light therapy and virtual light therapy for those with seasonal affective disorder and even Alzheimer's patients who experience sundowning. We also see chromotherapy in modern bathtubs and spas and light therapy screens that mimic sunlight. And we know the use of color stimulates the brain to spark creativity and cognitive stimulation. So live colorfully. It is an essential part of your wellness plan. And you can check out all of our individual colors and what is behind those colors on our Me Time Monday wellness hacks at the end of our podcast episodes. We hope you enjoyed this Me Time Monday wellness hack. Each episode of our Caregiving Club On Air podcast features a new Me Time Monday wellness hack. And check out more great wellness articles on our website and from my upcoming book, Me Time Monday, the weekly wellness edit for a wonderful life. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Caregiving Club On Air. Please listen to us on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts and other listening channels. Check out all the resources and article links on our episode guide page at caregivingclub.com. Hit the podcast tab at the top. And you can email us with comments or questions at podcast at caregivingclub.com. I'm Sherry Snelling, and I wish you all to take care and stay well. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Caregiving Club on Air. Please listen to us on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts, and other listening channels. You can check out all the resources and article links on our episode guide page at caregivingclub.com on the podcast tab. And you can email us at podcast at caregivingclub.com. Take care and stay well.